everybody. Don't know why I did that. Yeah, just in one of them moods, I guess. Right, so today I'm going to be bringing you an interview with Vala Ventura. <sighs> okay, so, um, yeah, so she's a folklore author. And uh, one of the books that we're mostly going to be doing the interview about is uh, Fairies, Pookas and Changelings. Uh, she has wrote books about uh, werewolves, vampires, banshees and that in the past. And we do touch a little bit on that, but mostly we're talking about the fairies today. But we don't just stick to fairies, you know, we go all over the place, you end up talking about mermaids and all sorts of shit, so... Uh, yeah, Val was uh, great to talk to, she really knows her shit, and um, very interesting person. Again, we, we spoke for hours, uh, what we're going to put out today is just a little snippet of what we actually spoke about. Um, hopefully we're going to have her on in the future, and to that ends, I want to ask you a favour. If you enjoy what you hear today, um, you know, or if you have any questions for Vala, then... I'll be putting a website in the show notes or the description. Just go along there, say hello to her, touch bases with her, ask her questions, say you heard her on the show and say you enjoyed it. Hopefully you will. I think you will. And uh, so, yeah, without further ado, I give you Vala Ventura. Folklore, yeah, so... Obviously, we all grow up with folklore. We all get told these stories, and you know, we always tell our kids there's no monsters under the bed, and you know, and the fairy tales and that. But you've obviously got folklore as a passion. So, what, what, you know, where was the difference for you? What, what crossed you over into, you know, the interest? Well, I mean, I think with any sort of like folk tale or um, sort of inherited story or myth, even within our own families a lot of them exist to be sort of a cautionary tale. So there's always that element, um, you know, keep the children closer to the fire, keep them from going into the bog, you know, all of these kinds of things. Um, and you see this in all cultures. You see it in Native American cultures. You see it in, you know, indigenous cultures around the world, that this is kind of a way that story is a way of um, – sort of laying the ground rules for society and the morals of society. Um, but that being said, I think that, you know, whether you are a staunch believer in, in, you know, little people running about the woods or you just like a good story, there's something really important that happens when people, when we are reading or we are kind of absorbing things it allows us to kind of imagine that what if without trying to uh, resolve that answer. So it lets us kind of ask the question and sort of suspend our idea of belief, even if we're telling ourselves, oh, it's just a tale. But I think when we do that, and I know this is certainly true for me, the more I do that, the more creative I feel and the more I'm able to creatively problem solve even everyday things. You know, like, what would the fairies do? Not quite like that, but just to the point where you're kind of training your brain to think outside of the norm. And so if for no other reason, I think that fairy and folk tales and folklore is a vital part of um, of society and, and has been a vital part of societies for, you know, all time, really. Yeah, no, I tend to agree. I think, um, obviously, like you say, the cautionary aspect of it, we, you know, we fully understand, but, um, the veil for me between the, what, what people will call most of these folklore 
stories, they'll call them myths, and you know, and you've sort of alluded to that. But for me, the veil between the paranormal aspect of this and um, the myth, I think, is is quite thin, and I think. You know, as we go through the years, we see a lot of parallel, parallels between, you know, the old folk tales and what we see now. And uh, I'll come on to that a bit later. But I just wondered if you had any sort of paranormal experience, what might have influenced your work? Oh, definitely. So I have, you know, I, I had a somewhat unconventional childhood, which I didn't think was unconventional until, you know, I became an adult and realized that most people don't spend hours looking at their mother's occult books, you know, when they're sick old and most people don't spend time with their family picnicking in cemeteries or using the Ouija board or learning the tarot at a young age. So, uh, you know, I was pretty heavily influenced by that stuff. Not that I grew up necessarily practicing all of those things, but those were as common as a deck of cards. Even my um, grandparents used to do, um, both of my grandparents were deaf. They could not hear and my grandfather could not speak. And they used to have little seances in their in their kitchen where they would have the children try and guess what they were all thinking or they would hold hands and try and levitate the table. So there were, you know, there's sort of this like inherited history of um, sort of a love of the, the paranormal. And so I think I grew up not not really fearing ghosts and um you know believing in the power of things like i mean i remember my mom you know teaching me lucid dreaming when i was a kid and parents do this all the time your child has a nightmare she didn't say oh you know it's just a nightmare it's an imaginary she she gave me a solution i fell in some kind of ditch or something like that and she said okay dream that again tonight and when you fall in that ditch imagine our dog comes and throws a rope down to you and pulls you out. And you know what? I did it. I dreamt that night, the power of suggestion and the dog rescued me. I never had that nightmare again. So that approach to kind of the way of, um, you know, looking at the world certainly colored my ability to, um, uh, follow that path. And, uh, I spent a number of years. It'd be fair to say you're open minded then. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm open-minded. Um, yeah, everybody probably themselves. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to say I, I love that approach as well from your mother there. Like, um, I think uh, you know, t- far too often, you know, children go to the parents and say, you know, they might have seen a ghost, they might have seen something strange, and and it's just too readily just brushed off. You know, oh no, you, you, you're seeing things, that type of thing, and I, and I think that. As because uh, I speak to a lot of people who have had these uh, childhood experiences and. And that, 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 you know, that brush of the shoulder, you know, that, that shrugging off, um, you know, really haunts them <laughs> more so than the paranormal experience. So now I think your mother had the right approach there. Yeah. I mean, that's a really good point. And I think something that as parents, we instinctively want to protect our children. And so while our hearts might be in the right place to say, oh, no, no, there's no such thing as monsters or there's no such thing as ghosts thinking that that's comforting. In fact, um, you know, it can be, especially if it's a recurring visitor, it can be very damaging for children because then they feel like they can't talk about it because now it's imaginary. And I um, worked with a woman on a book a number of years ago. I just sort of read it for her and helped her edit it a little bit. And her name was Karen Good. 
And uh, her book is called Kids Who See Ghosts. And I actually met with her and had incredibly interesting conversations. And she would be a lovely guest for you because she has such an incredible approach. But her whole idea was, you know, guide them through that fear. Don't don't exacerbate the fear. They might be afraid and maybe they should be afraid, but work with them to not dismiss it. And, and even, you know, I mean, we see this, you know, we do this with Santa Claus and the Easter bunny and, you know, some parents say, Oh, I don't want to lie to my children. And other parents say, Oh, I want them to, you know, enjoy the childhood and the myth. And, uh, and I say, well, you know, who are we to say that it's a myth? (laughs) You missed off two, two theory. (laughs) Right. We got the two. Does that that feature in your book? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, um, yeah, but I do think that, that having that kind of approach definitely now, you know, my, my father was quite different than that. You know, he was a very, um, conventional Southern man. And so he didn't really, you know, subscribe one way or the other to, um, to any of these things. I mean, he never, he never said about this. I mean, it was really sort of the, these, the, the sort of world of the occult psychic arts and the spiritual development of the children were left to my mother, let's just say. Um, which is probably for the best. So, um, but he's a wonderful man. He just, you know, he never really, uh, he got, got in on it either way. Um, until later in life. Now I think he probably accepts it a little bit more being, being around it. But to answer your question in a very long winded way, I have had numerous paranormal experiences, um, since the, since a, at a very young age, um, seeing things, mostly um occasionally hearing things mostly feeling things and a couple of times seeing like you know sort of apparitions but um most often you know something feeling sort of like the tap on the forehead or the sitting on the edge of the bed and sort of like feeling that presence and not being able to explain it um so just sort of, you know, coming from both the possibility that it could be and then experiencing it myself certainly kept me on the path of um, belief. I mean, my if people ask me what religion I am, I say I'm a supernaturalist. I don't really rule anything out. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair enough. <laughs> but I think when you actually break down religion, it's quite supernatural in itself, I suppose. It but, is, and um, parallels, which, I mean, we could... Mm. It'd go down a whole other path with that, with, you know, just sort of the, the layers of, you know, pagan beliefs and then, Absolutely, yeah. uh, you know, things sort of built on, on top of that. So. Yeah. I was going to say, um, cause obviously I was reading the book and I've seen this, like a few accounts there of leprechauns, which are one of my particular favorites. And oh, me. <laughs> yeah. And I just noticed that cause I, I always picture a leprechaun wearing a green, green suit and i noticed in a few accounts there that that actually people were seeing him wearing red yes uh, it's that surprised me and that's part of the reason i put it in the book and why i've I've always been quite fond of leprechauns and believe at one point when i was i think about seven years old i saw i was a leprechaun but i'll tell you it didn't fit the description of a leprechaun in the sort of, you know, royal velvety green finery and bowler hat that especially here in the United States were kind of given this, this little red bearded image of what a, you know, what a leprechaun is and, and that he walks around with this pot of gold. And so some of these um, descriptions of the leprechaun, different spellings of it, different, uh, 
descriptions like the the red hat and then there's of course the connection to these lovely little um sort of Scandinavian elves that also seem very similar to Santa Claus and the elves that help Santa and so they you know they're all wearing these little red caps and I think probably many of your listeners have even heard something like oh little red cap and it's sort of like a little elfin man with a red cap um but yes that, uh, there are many uh, different sources that actually describe leprechauns as being well dressed, but wearing red a lot. And um, also, I learned, and I didn't know this somehow. I didn't know this that they are the cobblers of the fairy kingdom, and you can hear the tap tap tapping on their cobbler bench, and you can actually listen for that as you're out wandering, if you're out leprechaun hunting, in the hopes that you might, you know, be able to follow that sound and. Uh, track and then of course trap the leprechaun mm, i'd love to do that could do do with a cash but, <laughs> but i did i did read a story in there that he's uh pretty cunning even if you do catch him so you know what i mean that, that might be a lesson to people but there was a one account of a person seeing him wearing uh what was uh I, I guess referred to in there was a british british uniform you know the the, the red jacket and the, the white and the buttons and and uh yeah just it really blew my mind because I, I don't know. Not that I know much about leprechauns, but you know, I yeah. generally picture them as green. So if I saw a little red man, I'd think, oh, well, it's not a leprechaun; it's something else. But yeah, yeah you who knows? Maybe an elf or a goblin, or yeah. And, and it is interesting to sort of take into account with any of these uh, stories, especially the ones that you know I've recorded directly from you know something that was taken from an account in the 1800s. But you had a certain a certain degree of um, ethnocentrism, I guess, is what you would call it, where the, you know, the, the taker, the scribe has a certain viewpoint. Uh, and it is often, especially in the case of some of the Irish stories, um, of viewing the people as peasants and sort of looking down their nose at them and taking down these like, oh, that, you know, tottering old man is talking about a puka, but we all know he's a he's a drunk. So there's a certain degree of that. And you can see that in many of the stories, especially the ones that sort of were published in the late 1800s in Victorian uh, England. You had more of that. And at the same time, you know, when you you know, if you know, and I, I hardly consider myself a great scholar of the complexities of Irish history, but you can also see little digs here and there and like the things about, you know, um, what they wore. And that can be very, um, it can change very much. And often you would have like a reverend, you know, very, very, especially in the case of um, some of the information I have about werewolves in my other book, there was a reverend that traveled all over Eastern Europe and Northern Europe and Scandinavia, taking down accounts of, um, you know, firsthand accounts of werewolfism. And, uh, but even in that, even though it's clear that he believes he still has this very um, religious viewpoint and often refers to the pagans as, you know, uh, in, in, you know, sort of a, a formal derogatory terms. So you always have that with folklore. And it's always, you know, interesting to hear different people's uh, viewpoints and sort of, you know, pick, pick things apart uh, on another level, which even after I put all of these stories in the book, you know, I, I go, I, I mean, I'm, I'm still reading my book, you know, <laughs> it's like I go back and read it. And like, remember, you know, because of course you write it sort of in a little bit of a, 
a fever. So you don't always, <laughs> don't always know what's, where, what's coming from where. I do that with the shows. I sometimes listen back to them and think, I didn't really say that, did I? <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so the pookas then, because this is a new one on me. I've never heard the word pooka before. And, uh, I noticed that uh, in the you've got a section in there, a chapter in there, where it talks about these pukas being visible to uh, drunks, uh, you know, drunks reporting them, and I and I see parallels with that in today's paper reports and that because we always get these uh, reports of people seeing a UFO or uh, you know could be a fairy, could be anything. They see them, and the, the paper will always make a, a point of saying he just stepped out the pub when he saw it, kind of thing. Right, and, right, and, and right. You see that parallel in, in some of these oh, stories going back to the pukas, ab- don't you? Absolutely. And the thing is, is that the pukas, of course, do that on purpose. Now, to clarify, drunks are not the only ones who can see pukas, but it's quite common that they will sort of prey on the town drunk because they know that no one's going to believe them. And the puka sort of likes to exist in that trickster fashion. So he's always kind of tormenting you a little bit, but not enough to really do any harm in your life or really, you know, cause great, great damage or duress. Um, but just enough so that no one quite believes you. And there are so many accounts of, you know, stayed for one pint too many walking along the road. And the next thing you know, I wake up in a ditch. It must have been a puka. And then, you know, this person's, you know, insisting to their wife, no, 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 I was, you know, taken by this horse with glowing eyes and it rode me across the countryside and I was fearing for my life. And, and she's just standing there thinking like, mm hmm, mm hmm. Yeah. You know, what, what, how many ounces was this puka? So you definitely have that. And then, um, here in the United States, actually, we can owe our knowledge of, and I, a lot of people have heard of a puka, even if they're not sure of it, because of this wonderful movie that came out in the 19, I think it came out in the late 40s, starring Jimmy Stewart, and it's Harvey. It was based on a play that had been written, I think, in the 30s, and it's about this town drunk who sees a giant white rabbit. And the, ra- the rabbit sits down at the pub with him and has a drink and follows him around. And he has these conversations with this rabbit. And there are, you know, all of these scenes where he's just talking to nothing. Um, and yet, you know, you know that the rabbit's there because you believe that this man can see the rabbit. And, you know, he refers to him as his puka. And basically, he's just sort of existing to kind of get the better of everyone, you know, kind of, you know, make make this guy sort of the laughing stock, but also, you know, kind of embarrasses the sister and it, you know, it sort of ruins his life, but not in a real life, you know, like a impossible to come back from kind of way, but in a sort of trickster way, you know, in a way that just sort of reminds you that, you know, it's, I guess, humbling to encounter a puka (laughs) or to fall down side of a of a mountainside half drunk and think whoa i guess i did have one too many yeah well i've definitely seen white rabbits on occasions yeah <laughs> but um, oh, of course yeah the, the puka then does it um obviously we're talking about something here that is more or less a shapeshifter you know it can take any form uh, like you alluded to the horse with the red eyes and this guy seeing a white rabbit yes and generally, generally a rabbit or a horse, but I have seen some, you know, you were, you were talking about like the, the hellhounds. There's some connection with like, 
you know, dogs and things like that with pukas, but it's almost always a, a rabbit or a horse or most commonly. Hmm. And the red eyes is significant, I guess. But does it, does it, has it been known to tell people's futures? I mean, is it always a trickster or does it, you know, does it ever, you know, do, do things for good? Um, I mean, it certainly, it depends on your version of good, I guess. Yeah. Um, it certainly can. Hey, if it's paying for all them drinks, it's doing, it's doing all right as it is, isn't it? <laughs> well, more like if, you have this encounter and it sort of takes you to the edge of your comfort zone, you might reevaluate your life and your choices. And so it is my belief that the puka appears to people who need a little bit of guidance. Uh, that's kind of, and, and I think that, that, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, sure. There's just sort of like a, a, you know, a certain level of just sort of joking about it, but it's really, a, I think a little bit more than that. And it's often an instance. Um, so many times these stories, and again, these can exist to sort of lay the groundwork for the morals of the, you know, of the town or the, the region. But, you know, so many times the, the end of the story is that when he never went down that road again, or, you know, he changed his, uh, he he changed his ways and uh, decided to stop drinking. I mean, all these kinds of things, you know. So, um, but I, I I do think that they they exist for a reason, and we see them for a reason, which is probably true of most fairies and paranormal, uh, you know, ghosts and things that we encounter. I mean, it can seem at random, and we may never be able to put all the pieces together. But um, I've got got a perfect example of that, actually. It happened to a friend of mine when he was a kid. And he uh, lived up in the north of England. And what he'd do, he he was brought up by his dad. His dad was a single parent at the time. And he'd he'd go off on adventures and, you know, he he wouldn't come home until it got really dark. And his dad always told him, you know, don't stay out late, you know, the usual stuff. And this particular day, he was going down his country lane. And he knew he had to be back for tea and that. But he he, he decided, ah, no, I'm just going to go over to this pond. And he'd been there, you know, countless times before. But he just, as he jumped over, the, sat, went to jump on top of the wall to go towards his pond, as he just jumped up on top of the wall, he heard something in his ear roll. And obviously there's, there's no one around him. This is a country lane in the middle of nowhere. He heard someone in his ear roll just say, no, turn back. And he did. You know what I mean? He just jumped, jumped off the wall and went home. And he'll never know why. Do you know what I mean? He'll never know why that was said to him. But, you know, was it for good? We can only assume, can't we? Well, hopefully he, I mean, because he listened, you know, who you won't know. But no. but on the flip side, you won't know what was on the other end of that warning. And fairies, in particular with children, um, are rather protective of children. They mess with adults. And they will mess with us till the day we die. But with children, generally speaking, uh, um, they are very uh, protective. And um, in fact, that's kind of where changelings come in. You know, they, they like children so much they want to bring them back. They're a fairy kingdom. And so they might snatch your child away. But generally speaking, they, you know, there's a, a natural connection, just as we spoke earlier of the, children's natural ability to see and perceive the paranormal or other kind of, you know, what unexplained instances, you know, there's all kinds of accounts of children saying really creepy things to their parents, like, you know, a two-year-old saying, when I, uh, you know, 
when I died, you, you shot me or, you know, just sort of like weird, weird sort of past life things. And, um, and so it's natural just as, um, as people approach the end of their life, often that veil is lifted and they're able to see or experience more. They might believe their, their mother's in the room with them or their grandmother or someone they loved that passed on. They start to see them with them so that the veil is, you know, thinner at both ends of our life. And then, you know, we're smack in the middle getting inundated with all the ideas that it can't possibly be real. And look at us, we're talking to each other across, you know, thousands of miles in an ocean with just a couple of, you know, clicks of a button. So who can see what's really real? <laughs> Indeed. Well, that's another show altogether, isn't it? But um, <laughs> as you've brought up the changelings now, I'm a bit wary of these little shits, if you want to call them that. But, yeah, um, you know, that this is the creepiest fair. It is. It's as a and as a parent, it's you know it kind of takes it to another level for sure. Do you think sometimes we do it a disservice by by calling? No, do the fairies a disservice? Disservice by calling changelings? You know the the ones that do this? You know fairies themselves? Do you think they are? No. All, do you think they're all one of the same thing, or do you think they are no, different? I sorts? think they're a pretty good representation of you know one end of the spectrum with fairies, just like you know I mean. You still call serial killers human, you know. <laughs> so true, true enough. <laughs> so, um, so yeah. the changelings then, because this again parallels what we see in um, some some aspects of modern uh, society, and even going further back to like the um, Native Americans, they they would talk often about their children being taken by Bigfoots, and uh, you know the kids just disappearing into the woods. And we see a lot of that in this changeling, changeling stories. And obviously you've got uh, people's, uh, you know, modern day scholars try and say, well, what people were actually talking about when the changelings was talking about like um, deformities in, that, in, in children that they didn't understand. And they thought that, you know, yeah. the child had been swapped at birth because obviously um, the, the deformity was, uh, you know, in a... I don't know how to phrase this, but non-human, you know what I mean? Right. Um, For example, you know, in, you know, the 15th century in rural Ireland, if someone was born with what now we might identify as like Down syndrome, syndrome. someone might then say, you know, oh, you've got a changeling. They're not quite, you know, they're not quite normal, quote unquote, normal. So um, there's definitely a, a certain degree of that. And, you know, I mean, we burned witches, so we did all kinds of, uh, you know, things that we would blame on witches and fairies and werewolves and vampires and that we know today, um, you know, maybe was uh, scientific, you know, it could have been an outbreak, um, it could have been ergot poisoning, it could have been all of, all of these things. So we take this all with, um, you know, a bit of a grain of salt. But nonetheless, changelings remain quite, quite frightening um, because... So often it can, you know, the the idea is basically just to clarify a changeling is the fairy switch. So you have a baby and uh, you, you know, you wake up to check on your baby and your baby's gone, but there's a baby there. But it's mm, the changeling. It's, like, it's almost like the cuckoo. I I don't know what that is. <laughs> the cuckoo. It, its parents drop it, drop their their egg into um, oh, an, oh. Another, another, <laughs> yeah, another bear's nest, and you know, you know what I mean. <laughs> It's a similar sort of thing, isn't it? So it happens in nature, so it happens in fairies. Sure, it happens in nature, exactly. So why, why <laughs> aren't fairies beyond bored of it? 
but um but as for the kids going missing and, and and changing and all this and like i say we see it replicated in uh, native american culture and to some extent we see it replicated today because we get so many stories of um i don't know how much you go into the alien abduction side of things but we get a lot of these stories you know where people and i've read actually accounts where people have gone to the doctor they're like i don't know you know 12 weeks pregnant or whatever they go to the doctors everything's fine they go for a check the next next morning they wake up and there's something wrong they go back to the doctor and the baby's gone you know and this is why it's still in the womb so we get and obviously that's associated more so now with uh, aliens um and i've read accounts of people having this happen more than once uh, and they've got the the paperwork to show that the, the child was definitely there but it's just gone so those parallels and that makes me wonder about the folklore. I mean, is 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 it still going on today? I mean, what would you say to that? Well, I mean, it's interesting because I actually um, was just listening to an, uh, another interview with Jim Harold, and um, it the, sort of the topic came up. They were they were showing it was a webcast, and they were showing this um, sort of phenomenon that had been seen in the sky. I can't remember where it was. It was somewhere in Asia, and it was you know, like it kind of looked like a, a phantom city in the sky. And Jim Harold said something very insightful. He said, you know, we know that scientifically we call this something now, but think, you know, 300 years ago or 500 years ago or 100 years ago, we didn't have the science to identify what that was. And so we called it, you know, uh, X, Y, Z. And he said, what, you know, who's to say, I mean, isn't that sort of right now, we don't have the science to explain what we're seeing in these sort of experiences. And this was sort of related specifically to like, you know, like UFOs or aliens. But I, I, and I I think that's a very insightful approach to it. Um, But I I also think, you know, we spend a lot of time and and we we wage a lot of wars trying to disprove what, you know, the, you know, indigenous people have been saying all along. So sometimes, even though so much of you is bred to think of as a myth as a lie, sometimes we have to switch our way of thinking and see the value of the myth and whether, you know, and rather thinking like lie versus truth, look at the importance of the story and what it is telling us. And just as in some cases, you know, you do have the clear cautionary tale, you know, don't go wandering off while mom and dad are working in the field. You, it, with the changelings, it's a little, you know, the, the, the cautionary aspect of it isn't there so much because they are specifically, I mean, they occasionally, it, it will be an older child or sometimes an adult, usually a handsome young man or a fair young maiden sort of, you know, cajoled into ending up, uh, a, a, you know, sort of kidnapped and taken into the fairy kingdom. But usually by the time a person's, you know, an, of adult age, they might go willingly or they might be sort of lured in, but that doesn't mean that they're being kidnapped necessarily, you know, against their will or without knowing what's happening. Um, but with the changelings, you do have this certain aspect of just like, you know, there's not a lot of, there's some measures of prevention and some superstitions, you know, back when women gave birth in, 
in at home all of the time, you, you know, that you were supposed to lock all the cupboards and I mean, anything that had a key or a keyhole to it, you had to lock every drawer had to be secured. And that before the baby was born to prevent the fairies from coming in and, you know, they just can't help themselves. They have to have this little adorable child. And so that's the thing that kind of sets changelings apart a little bit or the idea of changelings apart. Um, and that does kind of make it a little more haunting is that the, you know, the, the cautionary aspect of it, it's difficult to explain that away because there really isn't one other than, I mean, what can, you know, what's the caution? Don't fall asleep. Well, in its crib, you know, that's not really, I mean, who hasn't fallen asleep exhausted, you know? So you can sort of get into the idea that, okay, well, maybe you have a bleary eyed, you know, new mother who's totally exhausted and she looks at her baby and can't tell what's going on. Or there could be some elements of postpartum and a disconnection toward, toward, you know, a child, which is, still viewed with so much stigma, but certainly was viewed with bar, I mean, wasn't even acknowledged, you know, a hundred years ago or really even 50 years ago. So you can certainly get to some of that, but nonetheless, um, it still remains this very um, terrifying and sort of, I wouldn't say it's a modern day threat because I think, you know, <laughs> we have webcams, parents are much more vigilant, but um, it still is a very, uh, a very haunting idea and something that I think we're both terrified and fascinated with at the same time. Mm. So, um, again, you know, even when you just mentioned there about locking the cupboards and, and, and this comes crops up again with the brown the brownies uh, brownies is it the little fairies that help tidy your house and that yeah. you see <laughs> some parallels me. yeah you see parallels between that and like modern day ghost reports as well so do you think this is how people trying to explain you know poltergeist activity almost back in the day or by I think it's the other way around. Today we, we call it a poltergeist, but it's really actually a brownie. I mean, it could be, be looked at either way. I certainly have seen many parallels. Um, one of the most obvious parallels between the sort of parent, paranormal ghost world and the fairy kingdom is the banshee. Because the idea of a warning ghost, of a ghost coming to warn you of death or, um, you know, of the illness uh, or to, you know, warn you of being in danger, the the banshee is kind of, you know, they're they're from the fairy kingdom, but they they almost straddle that world that's a little bit more ghostly. And in many different, the banshees, you know, technically strictly Irish, but in many other cultures, there are very similar kind of warning inherited ghosts that only certain people see that let you know when, you know, some kind of significant and usually, you know, um, like I said, illness or death and some, some sort of untoward event is uh, occurring in the family or in, you know, someone close to the family. So there are definitely a lot of parallels and the brownie is a great example because, um, you know, not so much the brownie, but some of the, the accounts of hobgoblins and imps, which these are all sort of domestic fairies that, that, you know, they live among us. Um, they might live in the barn. They like cats. You know, cats are fond of them. So you're not going to, these are not creatures that your animals are going to scare off or, or bark at or kind of like indicate that there's something eerie there because they get along well with domestic animals. And they're all very well behaved and they will help you unless you are lazy or you don't give them their just desserts, which 
like a very nice wine and a lovely slice of cake or a saucer of milk or things that, you know, are of high quality. If you reward them until, you know, the, until your dying breath, they will tend your house and look after things. Um, but if you slight them, you're going to, you know, experience anything from being pinched black and blue in the night to, um, you know, all your crops failing and your whole house uh, falling under not necessarily a deadly illness, but a uh, unpleasant, you know, an unpleasant illness. So sometimes you hear these accounts of like a poltergeist moving things around and stealing items and scratching you. And there are actually a few accounts of something more on the on the imp spectrum from like a, a, a brownie. Brownie's fairly mild, whereas an imp performs some of the duties of a brownie, but is a little bit more uh, mischievous and, and, you know, honestly, sometimes just likes to pinch children in the night. You know, it's not a very, <laughs> or you. So you might wake up with unexplained bruises and you can't find your keys. Now you could blame that on your own drinking the night before, <laughs> or <laughs> it could be you have, you know, a little creature living in your house. So, <laughs> Well, oh, definitely. I've definitely got one of them. I've got two of them. <laughs> but um, getting back to this, um, this parallels between, and I know you must have read quite a lot of books, and even you no know, referenced, you know, in your book, there's there's plenty of books referenced in there. So I must have come across all these stories. And how many, or did you come across any of uh, the? You know the, the, the glamour, uh, what they used to call the the wee the wee folk used to change. You know um, what they do? They, they draw you into the forest with a song or you know some sort of fiddle yeah, playing. Yeah. They drag you into the forest and then they'd see a banquet laid out in front of you. And, and yeah. the idea the idea <laughs> is that you, you you know you don't eat any of it. I think there was a story of um, someone actually nearly married some trolls in Scandinavia that did this to them. But um, that was in your book, wasn't it? But um, this idea, this you know, the fairy has been able to change this bark and worms and that using glamour into food, and then obviously you're forbidden. The story goes, you're forbidden to eat or drink any of this, otherwise you become part of their kingdom forever. Right. You can make it back as long as you, and you can go there and you can party with the fairies, but you must not eat or drink anything you do you might make it back but it's going to be like rip van winkle you're going to wake up a hundred years later and the whole world will have changed and everyone you love will have died and your life is you you'll have you know you'll be in rags and instead of the beautiful you know finery that you thought you were in um and so there's that yeah that glamoury that that trickery that exists and i I often think I spend time thinking about the relationship with time and fairies. And you do see that, you know, again, the Rip Van Winkle kind of aspect of it where, uh, you know, a mere hour in the fairy kingdom, a mere evening in the fairy kingdom, it, it goes by so quickly and it's so full of delights. And yet, you know, or even, you know, a, a, ferocious ride on the back of a puka that takes you to the to the the cliff's edge and makes sure you're going to die and it seems like it goes on for hours in fact you know can only be you know you you, you wake up and it's the next day and you don't know where you are or with fair you know you wake up and so much time has passed and people have been looking for you for a week or two and 
there's a couple of stories that I included in there about kind of situations like that, where it's like he fell asleep on the ferry mound. We warned him not to multiple times, but he was lazy and he laid down and he fell asleep and he woke up in the woods and saw these fairies dancing and decided to join them. And then, you know, leads to another, they offer you some wine. (laughs) Well, you're there, aren't you? So you may as well. (laughs) (laughs) So that's the, that's the main, that's the main thing. Just don't eat or drink anything, no matter how tempting and, and you'll be fine. You you can make it back. (laughs) But again, what you allude, alluding to there is, is this missing time aspect to these fairy tales of these fairy stories should i say and um again we see parallels with that with the modern day uh again alien abduction yeah, uh, yeah. into into some uh some of the stories actually the description of the fairies so closely resembles what we'd call you know the gray alien yes um what, yeah. what's, what's your feelings about that yeah, no, I, I have thought that a few times in reading in particular, some things I didn't even put in the book, but just, you know, I've read tons and tons of old books, you know, musty, crumbly, stinky old books and found so many instances in which I would read something and I would think, God, this sounds like it should be on coast to coast tonight. I mean, this is like, Somebody saying, you know, I was, yeah, I was abducted and they had these wide eyes and their skin was, was very greenish or gray. And so, yeah, there's, um, even some of the sketches of some of the sort of like impishy brownie type things, um, you know, they have a very like ET kind of alienish look to them. So there's, and of course, you know, abductions don't happen in the middle of a city. They happen, you know, on an abandoned road in the forest in the night, just as, you know, fairy encounters, you know, you can't just encounter a fairy in the, in the middle of a, you know, well, maybe in the middle of a club and, you know, in, in a city you might have encountered. I was going to say, yeah, in the middle of a pub and you've had a few. Yeah, might. in the middle of London, knows, <laughs> you know, but um, you still, you know, the, there's, there's, there are a lot of parallels between that and it's, um, it's interesting because it, it doesn't, maybe I have the opposite approach, but it doesn't make me more convinced about aliens. It makes me more convinced about fairies. Well, again, uh, you know, we could be talking about one and the same, you know? Exactly. And, and the lost time thing, I mean, I think what I think about is sort of the idea that, you know, we, we tend to think of our world as the main world, our only world. And then, you know, if there's anything else, it's at the end of this world or, you know, there's like a big black line that you can step over and get into that world. You open the right door, you turn the right key, you say the word three times. This kind of concept has, you know, that's throughout, you know, history and literature and movies. I mean, this is, but in reality, um, if you go back a little further and you go into the sort of the idea of time sort of being more of an overlap so that, you know, we people are talk about now about like parallel dimensions and sort of the idea that, you know, things can exist on different planes, but in the same time. And I kind of, you know, that's a little closer to, I think, uh, what what is really happening with sort of like the fairy kingdom and that is that, you know, it's there, it's there all along. It just has a, they have a different relationship with time and somewhat of a different relationship with space, although I don't think it's that different. Um, 
and that we just occasionally there's sort of crossovers and there's, you know, key places where that uh, happens more frequently, of course. And that, that may be true of all, you know, sort of like strange creatures and, and cryptids and things like that. Yeah, I was going to ask you, you sort of answered it there, but I was going to ask you where you thought or where these stories tend to say these creatures live. Um, but you're sort of saying another dimension. Well, I mean, it's, I mean, like, it's not, I, I don't like to think of it as a whole other dimension exactly because I, I actually feel like it, it overlaps and kind of exists in our own dimension. We just can't see it all the time. So rather than looking at it as like a bunch of lines in a row of different dimensions, I think of it more as like a sort of a circular idea of time and it kind of all happening. It's all happening at the same time, but you just can't always see it. You don't always have just, just like you don't always run into that person at the right time. There's, there's a synchronicity that's involved. And with the fairy kingdom, the synchronicity is, um, is important, but also the, you know, it's a, it, there's a gift in, in order to be able to see, you know, not just anyone can have these encounters and just not, although many, many people have had sort of paranormal experiences, that doesn't diminish the fact that it, when you have those, it's actually quite a gift and it is, um, giving you a little, you know, tap on the shoulder to let you know that you, you do have, that connection and you do actually have, you know, even if it's just a little bit of that, that second sight, which is really a gift. And once upon a time was considered, you know, it was revered in society and you went to the seer and you went to the, the, the witch and you, you know, they, they told you what to do. They, you sought counsel later that became the reverend or the priest, this person who was of spiritual guidance. And once upon a time, it was that person who was able to communicate, not even once upon a time, it's still happening today. It's just not as uh, accepted in Western cultures. The, the idea that this person is your, you know, your, your guidepost and they are able to connect with that world and can be the bridge between you and that world. And you can say, you know, I mean, who else are you going to talk to? Hey, I saw this thing in the woods, you know, and, uh, I'm not sure what it means. And then you have this person that you could actually speak to about this, who could explain these things to you. Well, they can definitely give me a call if I see any of these creatures. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Give me some guidance here. What am I supposed to do with this knowledge? (laughs) Just one more parallel between the, um, the fairies and the, um, uh, the aliens. Um, this is the last one I promise you, but, um, the, the 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 Betty and Barney Hill uh, alien abduction case, which is obviously pretty well known by most people, there was an account in there where um, Barney had actually got a, what they called a wart ring or a fairy ring. Um, and it was just a ring of warts. I think it was on his leg and he, or his upper thigh. And he said the aliens had um, injected him or something. And then he had this ring of warts. And uh, I've, I've seen other accounts of... Uh, you know, people being taken by the fairies and they come back with this ring of wars and they call it a fairy ring. Um, I just wondered if you'd come across any of that. Well, there's um, certainly a connection with the idea of those things sort of being like a fungus and the way that fungi in general tend to um, populate in circles. Mm. So the fairy ring is so often identified, at least in the, you know, in the forest setting, it's identified as a circle, it can be a circle of stones, but most often a circle of mushrooms, which will crop up yeah. sort of, you know, surprisingly. And I remember being in a, in a botany class years ago and getting to the fungi section, which is 
kind of mind blowing because it's not at all uh, like it's not quite like plants. It's not quite like, um, you know, the cells are different. They have actually something in them. They have chitin in them, which animal cells have, and yet they behave more, sort of more like plants. And so they're considered part of the plant kingdom, which totally blew my mind. And I remember saying, well, why do they appear in circles? And it just sort of had to do with the way that they're, you know, the spores spread. But I mean, a perfect circle. I mean, how often do you see a perfect circle like that, you know, that isn't uh, man-made? So. I think it's interesting that those accounts that you're speaking of where it's sort of like a ring, you know, it's this so often it could be like maybe it's a a skin fungus that also appears in this circle. I'm not saying that that doesn't mean it's from, you know, I'm not dismissing it, but there's some kind of connection there between like the type of um whatever's happen happening biologically whether it's in nature or in your own body that is connected to that idea. And, um, I don't know what it is. I mean, mm. no, I guess, well, I, guess that, I don't want to find out. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say that's another book for you. That is, yeah. but, um, <laughs> but, um, but right in South America, I think so. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. So I, I suppose really, you know, I had an experience and, uh, you know, I'm going to share it with you. Um, and when this happened to me, obviously I didn't know any of this stuff. And then obviously, as I've been researching the paranormal and, and doing the shows and such, I've come across these, like, talk about the, the fairies and the glamour and all this stuff. And you're not supposed to eat and drink and all that. It sort of goes along with what, what happened to me when I was uh, about six or seven years old. Anyway, this is a quick story. but So I was, I was about six or seven year old. And I remember it was the summer holidays. And um, we was off school. And all I wanted to do is just go downstairs and go out, you know, go out and play with my mates. You know, that's what you did, didn't you? You didn't even have breakfast. You just threw straight out of the get, like, get your water pistols or whatever. Anyway, so I come down the stairs and I'm heading in towards the kitchen. And we've, under the stairs, we've got what we call in, in the UK, we call it a cubby hole, which is basically just a void under the stairs. It's got a door on it. Then you just put shit in there, you know, like the Uber and that. <laughs> and um I'm going past this door and it starts rattling, which is obviously highly unusual. So I opened the door and inside, inside there was, um, I, you know, I don't know what it was, but it, it was presenting itself as like a little child, same age as me. And it was, um, essentially a little boy of say six or seven, same age as me. And he was wearing what I can only describe as, um, a wizard's outfit, you know, the hat, the pointy hat, a purple wizard's cloak, if you like, with, um, he either had moons on. Like crescent moons or stars or both. I can't remember exactly which, but I think it was crescent moons. Anyway, you're talking to me and, um, and I, the strange thing was I wasn't alarmed, you know, I should be alarmed. This, this child just appearing in my house, but hey ho. So, um, he starts talking to me and, and I, I remember shutting the door and going about my business. And this happened probably for maybe a week. This had happened every morning. I'd see him and he talked to me. And, um, he just, as far as I can remember, he'd, he'd tell me, like, knowledge, you know, knowledge, if you like. He, he, he was interesting to listen to, so he must have been telling me some, some relevant information. But on the final day, I opened the door, again, he was talking to me, nothing unusual, and then he pulls out this, uh, like, almost like, um, it was a glass, um, tube, you know, like a test tube, that's the best way to describe it, probably wasn't a test tube, but it was a similar sort of, uh, thing to that. And it had clear liquid in it. And he said to me, 
here, you know, have a drink of that. And for whatever reason, I said, no. And he said, no, go on, go on, have a drink of that. And I said, no, I don't want to drink it. And anyway, he got, he asked me maybe a couple, couple more times, you know, drink, drink, drink. And I just kept saying no. And he got really irate and he just started um, getting really angry. And, and anyway, I, I just shut the door on him and I just remember the door rattling, rattling, rattling. And I was holding the door shut and, um, eventually the, the rattling just dissipated and that, that was it. And I never seen him again. And then obviously, you know, years later, I'm reading these accounts of people drinking this food, uh, drinking the, you know, drink and eating the food and then becoming part of this fairy kingdom. And I just wondered if maybe that was a fairy, you know? That is one of the best stories I've ever heard. (laughs) (laughs) I, I mean, yeah, when you were saying that, I was thinking, because I have, you know, we were talking earlier about changelings and how it's, you know, the baby switch. But I think I mentioned that it can be sometimes an older child. And doesn't it make sense that how would you, you know, how would you trick a seven-year-old boy? You know, you're not going to trick him by being, you know, a gossamer winged fairy or, you know, being sort of like the king and queen. You, you'd just be some, someone that he could talk to. Mm. So it kind of, kind of makes sense that, you know, they were basically just trying to get you to, uh, you know, come with them, but they sort of working up to it. Right. So sort of a natural kind of predator sort of approach. Absolutely. Yeah. You just present, like I say, that's the way I I phrase it. He presented himself as a child because the, the, the child um, image, if you like what he was presenting himself, it didn't have uh, a bottom half to it. It was almost the bottom half was invisible. Um, so there was no legs. It was just an upper, it was just a torso. And, uh, yeah, it was just, um, again, you, you know, did you tell, ever tell your parents about it or did I told you... everybody about it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no one believed me. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> but yeah, but, uh, strange, you know, but, yeah, um, but again, like I say, you know, years later, I'm reading these accounts of these, these theories and, and stuff. And I can see, you know, all these, you know, it could be coincidence, but I don't know. I mean, to me, that that sounds far more. I mean, I think a lot of people would tend to say like, "Oh, it was some kind of you know demonic entity in disguise." But I think a lot of times what we identify as sort of demonic entities are probably just fairies up to you know. Yeah, I, I, I have a big problem with the word word demonic, you know, yeah. because you have to then you have to go and specify, you know, what what's a demon, you know, and all that. So yeah, I yeah. think we're talking about we're yeah. talking about the same creatures that can either be. Uh, malevolent or benevolent, you know what I mean? Of course they can shapeshift to whatever they want to be, but it seems much more likely, I mean, it, it wasn't particularly aggressive or with malice. It was just sort of trying to convince you to come to the fairy kingdom, and obviously you're an intuitive child and yeah, yeah. you could see it. Well, this, I mean, is the, I mean, this is the thing what I always said to people at the time about when I spoke about this. This is, you know, obviously in the back of your head, you've got that don't don't talk to strangers, don't take sweets on strangers, which you get told in the UK loads. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. But, uh, you know, that probably more so prevalent now, I guess. But if I'd gone out on the, on the front, like my friends were there and, the, and one of my friends had offered me a drink, I would have just took the drink. There would have been no question about it, whether it was in a test tube or whatever it was in. Strange little guy under the stairs. For whatever reason, that just wouldn't drink his drink, and um, you know, I, I'm curious as to what would happen if I had drunk it. You know, if you come back today, I'd probably yeah. drink it. In 
And now, now, you know, would you be, yeah, would you be singing some opera in a band touring as sort of a, an amazing changeling or <laughs> like what, what could have, how, could that have changed your life? Would you have been, would you have disappeared? Yeah. No, that, yeah. Well, you don't know, do you? It's, de- it's depressing when you put it like that, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Not really. I mean, the life of a changeling is totally overrated. <laughs> But um, everybody reveres you, but I don't think you ever are able to make the connections that you know you can make. You probably would never have children, so there yeah, you go. yeah. Well, you never know, <laughs> do you? So, um, getting back to the old fairies, then. So, for me, if I had to, you know, if I, if I had to pick my favorite one, because I, I think all these creatures, you know, even what we call goblins and, and fairies and, and leprechauns and. I think they're all one or the same because because you get them in Scandinavia, you get them in, and actually there was one report in your book of one even in Japan. Um, so we're, we're talking all over the world; these creatures pop up, which again makes me question if we're talking about something that's actually in our reality. But um, my my favourite, if I had to come down on one, I really like Lebrecon, but if I had to come down on one, which is my favourite, I'd go for the Tommy Knockers. Oh, nice! Yeah, yeah, and. You know, and I still, there's even, um, some, you know, Cornish pasties, because obviously the Tommyknockers are, you know, quite, uh, prevalent in Cornwall and the, the mines there, tin mines and that. But, um, there's even Cornish pasties what we can buy in the UK. And on the back of the Cornish pasty, it tells you that you've got to save the end of the Cornish pasty for the Tommyknocker. Oh, you see the very, so that's, it's the so last bag, that yeah. you say that because, um, where I grew up in California was mining territory was the, the foothills in Northern California where, um, to this day, the town that I grew up in has a uh, Cornish Christmas and there are multiple pasty shops and most people, there are like three places in the world that people are immediately familiar with pasties, England, uh, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, where there were also many Cornish miners who migrated to um, work in the copper mines and in um, in Northern California. And because the Cornish people immigrated and they worked in the gold mines and they brought with them pasties as well as the legends of the Tommyknockers. Mm. And uh, I think that's an excellent pick for fairy favorites. I mean, you can get, you can be protected, you can be doomed, yeah. uh, you can become rich, just as with the leprechaun. Um, but there's no, you don't really have to catch them. You just have to leave uh, a bit for them. And what I think is really interesting about that with the Tommyknockers, you know, they'll guide you to, you know, the best, you know, cache of gold or diamonds or tin or whatever it is that you're mining for um, to, you know, that you can do this. But as long as you leave something for them, a certain percentage, I think there's a story in, in that I included in the book where the guy leaves 25 percent yeah. and does it and does it and does it. And then, you know, he and his son do it. And then his son, you know, kind of takes over the family business. And then the son decides one day he doesn't want to do it anymore. And the guy never, you know, he becomes he becomes a pauper because eventually everything runs out. So. What yeah, I so like he probably it. said, "Oh, me old, me old man's crackers. There's no such thing as Tommy knockers." And exactly, sure. He grew up in the modern world and just thought, <laughs> yeah. "No, there's no such thing. This is good, hard work, and this is just knowledge. There's science. There's science behind this." And uh, I think what's interesting is that when you think about that, you also think about the idea that you know you don't take 
all of something. No. So if you're going to, you know, pick a few flowers for your mother on a, as you're walking through the forest, you don't pick the whole field. You don't pick every, you know, beautiful iris that you see. You pick one or two from each patch until you have this beautiful bouquet, but you don't decimate and take it all. And I felt like I, I felt, especially when I was reading some of the old Tommyknocker stories, I felt a real affinity to that of this kind of idea that, you know, these are sort of like mountain spirits and nature spirits. You know, they're they're deep within the mines and in the rocks and they have something to say. And you can't just go and strip them uh, because if you do, the mine will collapse. And but I mean, also there's science in that. Right. Like if you strip too much, you're going to cause, you know, the natural structure to give in and then, you know, all are doomed. But Good pick. I I have um, eaten many pasties, and I have never heard that you're supposed to leave the last little bit for the Tommy knocker. So now I'm going to do that. Yeah, going yeah, you should do, yeah. Going forward. <laughs> That's the best part, that last little bit of the crust, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. But I can just imagine the Cornish... Cornish miners sitting there eating the lunch and that last bite just chucking it into the mine because that's apparently what they did. Oh, right. But, um, yeah, but, you know, like I say, every, the last bite of anything in my house goes to the dog, pretty much. <laughs> your, very own, <laughs> your very own Tommy Knocker. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> but, um, I guess, yeah, but actually the question was, really for you, but it was going to, it was going to be, um, what's your favorite theory then? Oh, yeah. Oh, God. Well, you know, I kind of feel like I answer this question differently depending on how I'm feeling that day um you know if my house is really messy I might say brownie because I'm yeah. trying to get you know <laughs> help here <laughs> but I actually I, I really love the leprechaun I love the many things that I have learned about the leprechaun I've always had an affinity toward this kind of slightly mischievous elusive guy in the woods but um that's a whole other story (laughs) 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 but I um I think just I learned so much about the leprechaun when I was uh, over the last few years as I've kind of been working on this book and gathering materials for it and I feel like you know the the stories I mean certainly my favorite stories that are you know old stories that I included in the book are the leprechaun stories because there are three and they're all very different. One is about you know this wonderful um, like Halloween it's like Halloween related and so the you know the guy falls asleep and he gets this magic ring and the leprechauns carry him off and there's a beautiful maiden waiting for him it's just kind of this really fantastical story but it is in fact a leprechaun story another is about a man who um you know captures the leprechaun and he's bragging about it he's also very mean to the leprechaun when he captures it he is sort of like ties it up and whips it a little bit and it's just very cruel to it give me your gold give me your gold and so he get of course the leprechaun says well you know what you really want is my magic purse you should take this purse and the guy takes it he says there's only one coin in it but it's a magic purse you know every time you pull reach in to pull that coin out there's going to be another coin in there and he basically cons this greedy guy into taking this purse classic kind of you know moral tale so the guy takes it and he goes down to the pub and he's just you know oh 
dinner on everyone, drinks on me. And then at the end of the night, he goes to settle up and he pulls out the gold coin and he sets it down and he reaches in to get the next one. And what happens? It's totally empty. And that's not the magic purse at all. It's just a fake that the leprechaun produced and played on his greed. And it's, you know, of course, then he has to like, you know, scrub all the pots in order to, in order to go home that night and no one ever trusts him again. And then the other... That's the sort of story that I, I think that happened. <laughs> that totally happened. Yeah, like, that, happened. that happened. And the other story, I think, also is an absolutely true story, and that is the story of the man who uh, is a... He, he never comes around to drink. He's too busy working late at night in the fields and then, you know, going home to his family, and then he goes out again and he works and he prospers. Unlike many other people in the area who are kind of fallen on hard times. And so the townspeople become convinced that he has captured a leprechaun. And so instead of being rewarded for his piousness and his hard work and his sobriety, he's ostracized because everybody thinks he's holding out on this location of this leprechaun, which he never gives up. And even the story, as it tells it, that, you know, the, the teller of the tale is not entirely sure which is true, that the guy was really, de- you know, devout and just didn't have, um, you know, didn't squander his money or that he really was holding out a leprechaun and would never, you know, would never tell. <laughs> it's just like, damned if you do. <laughs> I feel sorry for him. He's just getting up in the morning trying to do the right thing. and. Uh, the wrong thing. <laughs> the wrong thing to do. The right thing. And everyone else is just tossing it off in the pub, exactly. drinking, Gu- drinking Guinness, and waiting for a leprechaun to show up. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? More fun. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so this is the fairies, pookas, and changelings book, yeah. Yeah. But. One of your previous books was the banshees, werewolves, vampires, and other creatures of the night, and. I wanted to ask you again, talking about parallels, but the the werewolf stories. I guess you're familiar with the modern day dogman stories. Yes. And um, I was just wondering if um, if uh, anyone sent you any stories regarding a dogman, or I'm, I'm presuming people will send you stories on occasion. Obviously, reading your books because you know I've shared your story with with you. You know, after reading your book. Well, um, I, so uh, yeah, do you get that, any stories like that? I always ask for for people to share stories and um, with sort of like, you know, the, the first couple books that I wrote, I, I wrote a book called the book of the bazaar. And then I wrote beyond bazaar, the follow up. And in those there's, you know, it's a whole collection of, you know, freaky facts about different things and sort of, you know, a hodgepodge, but, but there's ghost stories in there. And I, you know, I always put a call out. It's like, tell me your story. Tell me your paranormal encounter. There's a section on UFOs, all these kinds of things. Mm. And so in that manner, as I was working on, um, just before I did the, the, um, Banshee book, I did a book on mermaids. And so I put a big call out, you know, it's like mermaids, you know, has anyone had any mermaid encounters and I get nothing. And then I say, well, I'm also working on a book about vampires and werewolves. And I get quite a few, uh, emails and, you know, correspondence about that. And then finally I get some stuff about mermaids where, you know, it's just like people are not willing, they're willing to, you know, um, love mermaids and put them in a frame on their wall, but they will not admit that they think they're real and that they actually have encountered them. It's very, very difficult to get people to, you know, even the people in the most like far reaches of the UFO 
believer realm will yeah, snap yeah. at you when you say you think mermaids are real. It's like, really? Come on. I'm probably, yeah, I'm, probably no. I'm guilty yeah, of that no. myself. <laughs> it's very, very common. So, uh. So what, what was the description then of this mermaid? So I finally got, um, so I have a section in the book on, you know, real life mermaids. And some of those are mermaid crusaders. Um, you know, women who, women and men who dress as mermaids and they perform as mermaids, but they do it with, um, you know, sort of, you know, crusading for the oceans and, um, kind of doing these things to educate people about the beauty of the, of the natural world. Uh, and then you have a few people who are, you know, a couple different instances of cultures that have, um, really evolved to an aquatic lifestyle, um, like the Mokan people who can see very well underwater and the Haneo divers, um, in South Korea that can, you know, they can, these women can dive down to like 20 or 30 meters and they can hold their breath for sometimes as long as 10 minutes with no equipment underwater. Uh, and they just train their lungs to be able to do this. And so they're sort of considered, you know, real life mermaids and they're divers and they, they harvest pearls and other, um, seafood as a way of life. So there's kind of that aspect of like, okay, people sort of evolved, you know, ha- present day people have evolved over time to have this more, um, aquatic lifestyle. So the idea that, mer- you know, somebody could be a mermaid, you know, kind of, makes the line a little grayer, but I did actually have two stories sent to me about, you know, real mermaids. One was from a woman who was Aboriginal Australian and, um, it was sort of more of the kind of story of how, um, you know, in her family, they had a, a, what was called the mermaid dreaming myth where they believed, um, that they had sort of evolved from the ocean and from mermaids. And they had this symbiotic relationship with mermaids that they would make regular offerings. And as a result, the fishermen would have incredible harvests and the people would prosper and they wouldn't, you know, be pulled out to sea on a riptide or, you know, devoured by sharks. Um, so but there was one woman who not only did she send me a present day mermaid encounter, she drew, she, she sent me a sketch of what she saw, which incidentally looked rather alien like mm. it was a um, little, it was a man. He was uh or a male It had sort of a shock of kind of auburn hair and glowing almond eyes and otherwise looked rather human um, from the waist up, but actually looked a little bit like, I don't know if you ever in the eighties, if you ever read elf quest, but it, ha- it looked like one of the elf quest characters to me. Um, it was this comic series or this graphic series about elves that lived in the woods and, you know, did stuff, whatever, <laughs> but, but it had this sort of, um, it did have this kind of, a fairy like uh, aspect to it, but it also looked so much like those terrifying sketches that people do with the big almond eyes of the alien stuff. So it was very eerie and clearly otherworldly. And her story was that um, much like a ghost encounter or some other thing, you know, you wake up in the night and you kind of, you sense something's there and she looked and she saw this, creature sort of in her room she was in the bahamas so this creature in her room and she was just sort of like what the you know kind of mesmerized and a little bit terrified and you know did the whole kind of you just blink and it and it was gone 
and she just sort of, you know, tried to explain it away and she fell back asleep. But the next morning when she got up, there was sort of a puddle of water there. And her mother, who had also been in the same room, said that she didn't see anything. But, you know, later at breakfast, they were kind of talking to how'd you sleep? And she said, actually, I didn't sleep well at all. I kept waking up. I kept, I actually felt like something was in the room. And that's when this woman said, well, here's what I saw. And, uh, and so she, you know, I, I thought she was rather brave coming forward because I think a lot of people would mock her and say, oh, well, there's no, you know, there's no way that that could have happened. But, you know, it, it, to, in my mind, it, it made as much sense as any of the UFO encounters or the abduction stories. I mean, it, it seemed it seemed just as legit as those. So um, how far from the beach was she? They were, so she said it was like a sort of a, one of those little huts that goes out over the water. It sounded lovely. You know, like, like stick out. So she was in, she was, you know, essentially in the ocean. Mm. So, uh, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, straight in the ocean. I was going to say because I can just, I was just picturing this mere man crawling up to this right? thing, this house trying to look for her. You know what I mean? Well, and at the end of the story, she said that she was, she couldn't wait to go back. So she obviously wasn't turned off by it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even remember what your question was at this point. I just no, I don't. lost in the arms of the merman and. Yeah, man, yeah. <laughs> it was about dogmen, I think. What was it? No, oh, I, I don't know. I just, just I, <laughs> who knows? It was, it was. It was. Yeah, just yeah. Parallel. So yes, um, I did get some, uh, some. I mean, the thing about werewolves or modern day werewolves is that mm. that you know, the dogmen and the bigfoot. I mean, they can, they all can kind of be lumped together in the I'm not sure what I saw or heard but it was you know humanoid in size but very hairy yeah. so there there's a lot of you know like people might might say oh I think I saw Bigfoot but perhaps it was actually something more wolf-like um you know there's uh the werewolf of Bray Road which is in Wisconsin which is kind of one of the more famous modern uh accounts of a of a and I say modern with you know it, it took place throughout you know the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and I don't know if there have been any sightings lately although there are um, a lot of people that say they're that you know they've seen something alongside the road along this particular highway in the in the northern part of Wisconsin and it's just that you know they see this thing it's sort of dog like and it has um, you know, usually glowing eyes, it's lumbering alongside the road or they're driving slowly and they see something and it just kind of, you know, makes eye contact with them as they go by. And at first they think it's just an animal and then they it, realize that it's something a little um, more frightening than just, you know, a, a dog or a, a deer alongside the road. So there's a... Um, a number of people have sent things. Now, usually they they tend to send them after. So I'll be on a show and I'll be talking about werewolves and then someone will write to me and tell me about about their experience or, or they'll call in and say, I heard this howl and I grew up in these woods and I've never heard anything. But I just was working on um, just before our call uh, tonight, I, w- I just was working on a story that um, I won't. I won't spoil it because it's going to be in my next book, but a very, very close friend of mine who's contributed a couple of other stories to my other books um, is a man who, you know, this is the guy you want, you know, to have your back at Armageddon. I mean, he's not easily frightened by anything and you're kind of like, all right, you know, if, if you're scared, I'm, I'm going to listen. And told me a story about something that was sort of this low kind of, 
horrifying moan that he heard. And after he told me the story and we kind of, you know, we're, I, I wrote it up for the book and we were talking about it. I started sort of researching like what, you know, this is in Northern California, what is in that area. And that sort of led me into the, um, dog man kind of realm where there, there's, there's actually not a lot of written literature about what, um, in that particular area, it would have been the Mayadu people believed, although there's a name for a couple of creatures that had sort of a werewolf like behavior and, you know, moaned and things like that. So he, I actually suggested that he kind of look into some of the local lore and see if we could pinpoint what it was. But the creepy thing about it, um, was that his neighbor also heard it, but on a different night, like the next night. So whatever it was, whatever this thing in the woods that moaned, um, was sort of making the rounds on this hilltop. And, um, you know, it's, uh, I won't spoil it. You'll, you'll, you'll read yeah, it yeah, no. here or when the book is finally out, but <laughs> it's a, it's maybe it was, uh, maybe it was mating season. Well, you know, the, the, uh, and, and we talked about that, like in the story, you know, the, this is a piece of property that he, he grew up next to his, um, he bought the land right next to his grandparents' property. So he has lived on that land, you know, the majority of his life. Um, by nature of his work, he spends most of his time outdoors. He spent thousands of hours, you know, just wandering around the woods on that property. And he went through all of the possibilities in that, that, you know, as he, you know, in the in-between times when the sound would stop, he went through all of the possibilities. Um, but the thing that kind of, you know, really, I mean, he, he doesn't know what it was, but the thing that made it sort of extra terrifying was that when the sound stopped, it stopped as if it were like completely truncated and in some kind of vacuum. So it went from, there was no echo throughout the valley as there would be if it was an animal or some kind of other, uh, creature. So, I mean, who knows? We, it was either a drone of horrific proportions or it was, um, something that had crept in through the neighbor's spring and come to life and <laughs> was terrorizing the, the land. I don't know. I'll be, I'll be out there in a, another month or so and I'm, I'm uh, terrified, but also kind of can't resist staying the night on that property to see what, <laughs> see what happens. Mm. Out that way, you get quite a few reports of, uh, like genuine little people as well. You know, people, basically like miniature Bigfoots, what are like no more than three feet tall. Yeah. So, maybe you bump into one of them with a bit of luck. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a, a lot of people, you know, have seen something and they don't know how to explain it and, and they, yeah. it doesn't fit the description of a ghost and it doesn't really fit the description of, an alien either. So, you know, that's when, you know, they might write to me and say, what do you think this was? I mean, I had a woman write to me. I I didn't even have a response for her because I really wasn't, you know, I I haven't really figured out what it was that she saw. I mean, her details were very specific and, you know, it was just kind of one of those things where, you know, I saw this thing floating and, um, you know, it had a triangular body and I'm just like, I, you know, I don't, I have no idea what that was. I really, you know, I, I've never seen anything like that, but I'm no, sure. I've never heard about that. I've heard of a, um, there's a church, um, not far from me where, uh, it's got the vicarage, you know, maybe a stone's throw from the church and apparently that's haunted. And we used to go there as kids and 
Um, I had two people tell me they saw the same ghost, and it was uh, the ghost of um, what you call it, you know, a priest. But instead of having a, a human head, he had a green glowing triangle for a head. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know what all that was about. But there was two people told me that on separate, you know, on separate times, didn't know each other, and yet two people looked in that house and saw the same thing. So I didn't see it, but uh, maybe he had like evolved after he died onto a level. We'll never understand. This is weird, isn't it? Green. I mean, Trinity when the fir- came together. Yeah, when the first guy told me, I thought, what's he been smoking? But then, right. then like, the second one, I thought, well, hang on a minute. Because I know they didn't know each other, so. Oh, that's weird. Awesome. Wow. Oh, that's really interesting. In light of the triangle description this woman gave me, I, I'll, I'll, um, I'll send that to you offline. I'll, I'll send oh, you yeah. the description. You can. Tell me your thoughts on it, because I I've yet to respond to her because I really don't you know I don't know what it was. <laughs> that's that's part of the problem, isn't it? Yeah, that's part of the problem. But um, so just before we uh, get out of here, then I just wanted to ask you if there's anything you want to share with people before we go. Websites or oh, website. I thought you meant like warnings, like keep your door <laughs> and uh, look over your shoulder occasionally. Stay away from the changelings. <laughs> All of those things stand, yeah. Uh, you can visit me on my website. It's it's varlaventura.net, and I try and keep up to date all of the, you know, appearances I'm making on different shows and uh, whatever the excerpts of my book and my future books and my future projects. Um, my books are available wherever books are sold. So, you know, whatever your main source for books, if you type, you type my name in or you go to your local little um, brick and mortar bookshop, your independent bookseller. You should be able to find my books. They're all in print and um, uh, readily available. So barlaventura.net. Sweet. Yep, thank you for coming on the show. It's been great. Oh, thanks for having me. This has been a lot of fun, and um, I've been enjoying listening to your podcast. I hope that uh, everybody goes back and listens to all of the other episodes because they're all really fascinating. Thanks. 